Good evening, church family. Welcome back to our Bible study on the book of Philippians. We'll be looking tonight at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible with me. It's just a few verses, uh, but as usual, if we slow down long enough, we see um, that there are riches in every verse. So let's look at Philippians 3, verse 1 through 3. Let me read those for us. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we can tell that this is a marks a transition uh, in the letter so far in chapter one and chapter two. Uh, much of the focus has been on unity around the gospel, um, humility, following the example of Christ. And uh, now with this word, finally, obviously we haven't reached the end of the book, but we have reached the midpoint of the book. And so Paul is on his way toward the end, even though we haven't reached the end yet. And in this break, in this transition, he calls upon the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Why are they supposed to rejoice in the Lord? Well, obviously, right at the end of chapter 2, as we saw last time, they have reason to rejoice in the Lord because he spared their friend Epaphroditus, whom they had sent to Paul and heard was sick. And now Paul has told them he was actually deathly ill, but God had mercy on him and healed him. And that's why Paul is sending him back to Philippi so that they can see him and so that, he, uh, so that Epaphroditus can be reunited with his church. And so that will give them cause to rejoice. Um, We have reason to rejoice, uh, as Paul showed us in chapter 2, because of how the Lord himself, uh, the Son of God, um, humbled himself, took on flesh, and endured uh, death, even death on a cross, for our salvation. So we have reason to rejoice because of what Jesus has done for us, uh, how he has uh, humbled himself and suffered in order to save us, Um, And in that as well has given us a model of the kind of humility that we ought to uh, demonstrate in our life, that ought to be part of our character and the way that we live. And so Paul has given them uh, reasons to rejoice. Uh, But then also he says later in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In other words, we always have reason to rejoice in the Lord. And uh, it's not hard to think about why that is, right? Because no matter um, what real, genuine hardships we might be facing, no matter what real sorrows and losses and and difficulties, um, there is always something that we have to be thankful for. There's always reason to be grateful. And we don't always feel that in every moment, right? Um, But we know that um, God has loved us. God has sent his son for us. Uh, Jesus has not only died in our place for our sin, but he has risen from the dead, securing our eternal salvation. Um, And that even in the darkest valley, we have reason for hope ahead of us. And um, that doesn't mean it's, it's wrong to be sad. Right? But it is a reminder that even in our sorrowing, <clears throat> as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, there's always reason for rejoicing. Um, there's always reason to give thanks. Um, what that rejoicing looks like will be different in seasons of sorrow and in seasons of blessing. 
right? Um, it doesn't mean that the joy is not there just because there is sorrow too, right? Even if the sorrow is at the forefront right now, um, joy is deep enough, right? That it doesn't always have to be right on the surface. It, it can be um, deep in your heart um, and real and genuine even when um, you're not feeling very smiley right now. That's, joy is not equal to uh, being smiley, right? Joy is, is deeper than that, richer than that. So Paul says we should always be rejoicing. There's always reason to rejoice. Right? Think about Paul who was in prison and um, unable to go from place to place and house to house and preach the gospel. And some of the people who were not in prison were preaching in his stead, hoping to bother him or afflict him or something like that. Uh, even though they were preaching from false, they were preaching from false motives, and yet even still, Paul said, "I'm rejoicing because the gospel is being preached." So, um, so Paul himself models that um, call to rejoice in the Lord always, right? So he calls on them, reminds them to rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Um, which sounds like he's saying, look, I might not be telling you anything new, but that's not a bad thing. Um, to write the same things uh, is no trouble to me. It doesn't bother me to tell you stuff I've already told you. And it's safe for you. Um, uh, Peter says something similar in Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Um, he says to the church there in verse 12, he says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, he says, verse 13, as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. In other words, my main job is not necessarily to tell you something new, but to remind you of the things that you already know so that you won't forget them when I'm not there to remind you. Paul's saying something similar, right? It's good for me, uh, or good for you, and, and doesn't bother me, to tell you stuff I've already told you before, to write the same things to you over and over, to remind you. That's a good thing. Um, it's certainly true when it comes to uh, preaching and teaching the Bible today um, that our main goal is, is and ought to be faithfulness rather than novelty, Right now, it's good to teach somebody something that's in the Bible that maybe they haven't heard or or learned before. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. The problem is when we are so concerned to teach something new that we end up teaching something that's not in the Bible. That's a problem. Our main job is not to make up new, interesting stuff. Our job is to remind people and remind ourselves over and over and over of what the truth is, what the Bible has already said and has been saying for thousands of years. So it's good for us to be reminded of the things that we ought to already know, right? That's, that's a good thing. All right, so that's what he says in verse 1. And then in verse 2, he, uh, he says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, this is something we might not would have expected based on what we've read in Philippians so far. This has been a very positive, encouraging letter, upbeat, joyful, all the rest. And uh, it doesn't have the same feel in the first couple of chapters 
as some of Paul's other letters, and even some of the other letters of the New Testament, not by Paul, where they have to address false teaching, false teachers, uh, serious divisiveness and things like that. So far, we haven't really encountered much of anything like that. But now in chapter 3, we realize there is a serious problem that Paul needs to warn them about. And this problem is attached to certain people whom he calls dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Now, it's worth saying that... um, you know, a lot of times when we think about dogs today, we think of cute, cuddly things, um, sometimes even uh, pets that people have considered their family, right? Um, but even, even, even today when dogs are, can be such a significant part of somebody's life, uh, it's still not a compliment to call somebody a dog, right? Um, and in Paul's day, uh, as, uh, people didn't have dogs as pets like we do today. Um, dogs were, um, you know, more like scavengers. Um, and so even more so than it's, than it is true today, it was true then that to call somebody a dog was not a compliment, right? So, and we can tell by the other ways he refers to these people that this is not meant positively, right? Because he also calls them evildoers, that's pretty obvious, right? And mutilators of the flesh. Now, why does he call them mutilators of the flesh. Now, um, we get a hint from verse 3 where he says, for we are the circumcision. Now, we know um, that in Galatians in particular, uh, but also in Romans, Paul spends quite a bit of time telling uh, the churches that you don't need to be circumcised In other words, you don't need to be a Jew in order to receive God's salvation. Now, that seems in some ways really obvious to most people today. But the reason for that is because for nearly 2,000 years, that's what people have been preaching and teaching. And um, we've gotten sort of used to it. But in the early days of the church, when you read Paul's letters, when you read the book of Acts, you see that this was a very big deal um, to think that now that Christ has come, it was not necessary to be a Jew in order to receive God's salvation and experience God's blessing. Because all through the Old Testament, right, the emphasis was on the fact that God had chosen Israel um, and they were his people and they were called to follow his law. And part of what they were required to do is they were required to practice circumcision for all the males. Um, And so in the New Testament, when Jesus comes and uh, dies and rises again and then sends out the apostles to make disciples of all the nations, they've got to figure out, does that mean all the nations need to become like the Jews, which have been a separate nation for so many centuries? Or does that mean that the Gentiles can be just like they are, except now they trust in Jesus and they... um, you know, know that sexual morality is wrong, and they know that idolatry is wrong, and those kinds of things. And so, this was a a huge issue in the early church. Um, the first church council, so to speak, took place in Acts 15 in Jerusalem about this very issue, where uh, the apostles came together along with the church, and they had a big debate about how they should handle this question. 
Um, and of course, there were hints, even in the Old Testament, that God was going to include the Gentiles in His blessing and His salvation, all the way back in Genesis 12 and just all over the place. But um, it took some time and some effort for people to put that to put all those things together in light of the coming of Christ and realize that what that meant was that Gentiles did not have to become Jews to be saved. All they had to do was to trust Jesus, right? Um, So what Paul is addressing here in verse 2 is that there are some people uh, apparently either in the church of Philippi or somehow connected to the church of Philippi who are saying the opposite, who are saying that it is necessary for Gentiles to become Jews, to accept circumcision, and with circumcision comes all of the Old Covenant law, which nobody's able to keep. Um, And so that's why he calls them mutilators of the flesh. They're insisting on circumcision, right? This cutting away of the flesh. And yet Paul says, essentially, now that Christ has come, there's no need for that. And so all you're doing is mutilating your body. All you're doing is cutting away something that doesn't need to be dealt with. So um, he says he says they're dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh, those who are insisting on circumcision. And that's very similar, though we don't think of Philippians and Galatians as being very similar. What Paul's saying there is very similar, similar to some things he does say in Galatians. For example, in Galatians 5.2, Paul says, uh, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Um, he says, verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. If you're going to be made right with God by practicing circumcision and keeping the law, you've actually you've been cut off from Christ. Um, He says later in verse 12 of Galatians 5, I wish those who unsettle you, those who are insisting on circumcision, would emasculate themselves, right? That's very similar to what he's saying here about them being mutilators of the flesh. Um, Later in Galatians uh, 6 and verse 15, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, uh, excuse me, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It doesn't matter whether you've been circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. What matters is, are you a new creation? And we know from 2 Corinthians 5.17, who's a new creation? It's anyone who is in Christ. For all who are in Christ are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So Paul's addressing a very similar situation here in Philippi as he was addressing in the churches of Galatia. It doesn't seem to have become as entrenched of an issue in Philippi as it was in Galatians. He doesn't have to spend the whole letter on it like he does Galatians, but it is a significant issue. So... He says to them, those who are, and they could be Jews or Gentiles, Gentile converts to Judaism or uh, ethnic Jews who are insisting on circumcision, he says they're evildoers. Right? They, they, as, as he says in Galatians 1, they're preaching a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Because what they're preaching is that you need to do something, right? you need to become something by what you do according to the law in order to be saved. When the message of the gospel is Christ has done all that is necessary to make you right with God apart from you doing any works of the law. Those, those, are, those are different gospels. One of them is good news and one of them is not. 
And the one that's good news is the one that says, all you need is Christ. And that's what Paul is preaching, as he will say very eloquently uh, later in this chapter. But for now, we just want to look at one more verse, verse 3, where Paul explains, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now that first statement, we are the circumcision, that is very significant. Because what Paul is saying is, we, Jews and Gentiles, who believe in Christ, we are the circumcision. Now what does he mean by that? I thought you just said that he didn't, he was telling the churches they didn't have to practice circumcision. They don't. What he means is, and, and we see this in Ephesians 2, verse 11, Paul says that the Jews were called the circumcision, and the Gentiles were called the uncircumcision. That was something that separated them, and so it became sort of a, a moniker, a nickname, or what have you, uh, for how to, to label or distinguish the two groups of people. The Jews are called the circumcision, the Gentiles are called the uncircumcision. But now Paul is saying, we who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, meaning believers, whether Jews or Gentiles, we are the circumcision. We are the Jews. What does he mean by that? Well, he does not mean that God no longer has any plan or purpose for the nation of Israel, for ethnic Jews. That's certainly not the case. Romans 9 and 10 and 11 make very clear, um, at least uh, uh, in my view, that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. And that's a, those are challenging chapters. Not everybody agrees on what they say or what they mean. But <clears throat> I take him to mean there that God does still have a plan for the nation of Israel, for ethnic Jews. But um, So he's not saying that the church has in that sense replaced Israel, like God no longer cares about the Jewish people, he only cares about the church. He's not saying that, but he is saying something like this. The church is now what Israel was called to be, what Israel was supposed to be. Uh, the church in some way fulfills, uh, fills out maybe, what Israel uh, was called to be. And the reason why I say that is because of things like this. In Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uh, says at great length that the, the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles has been broken down by Christ through his death and that Christ has now made those who believe from the Jews and the Gentiles into one new man. And he says this uh, to the Gentiles. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, the Gentiles who believe are now, are now fellow citizens with the saints, with um, Jewish believers, believers from the Old Testament. Um, all those who believe, they're fellow members of God's uh, household. They're fellow citizens with those believers. And so what has happened is those who believe from Jews and Gentiles, they are now the ones who, they, they're God's people 
Right? They, the things that applied to Israel exclusively in the Old Testament, are now being applied to the church, to believing Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament. I'll give you another example. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses, uh, or excuse me, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verses 9 uh, and 10, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right Now that verse 10 is... Uh, is alluding to, roughly quoting a prophecy from the book of Hosea made to the nation of Israel that he's now applying to the people he's writing to here in First Peter. The language about chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, that comes from Exodus 19 when Israel was going to be brought into covenant with God there at Mount Sinai. The same things that God said about Israel then, God is saying about believers now through First Peter. Some people say that 1 Peter was written mainly to Jews. I don't think so. I think it was written to Gentiles. There's, we don't have time to get into that. But um, anyway, all, that, all those things to say um, that when he says we are the circumcision, he's saying uh, that we who believe in Christ, we are now what Israel was supposed to be. We are God's treasured possession. We are God's chosen people. Um, how else does he describe them? He describes them as those who worship by the Spirit of God. So we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. That is a gift of the new covenant that was not uh, a part of the normal experience of Old Testament believers. The Holy Spirit would come on certain people for certain times, uh, for certain tasks, but nobody had the Holy Spirit all their life, all the time, permanently, anything like that in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, all who believe receive the Holy Spirit permanently as a guarantee of the fullness of the inheritance that God is going to give us when Christ returns. And so we are able to worship by the Spirit of God who dwells in us. And he says, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Remember what Jesus Um, rebuked the Pharisees for uh, so consistently was their their misplaced confidence in the flesh, right? Their misplaced pride in what they had accomplished, what they had done, their ability to keep the law and all those things. Paul says, actually, those of us who are the circumcision, who are God's people, we're the ones who, we don't put any confidence in the flesh. Paul's going to say later, he's got all kinds of reasons why he could put confidence in the flesh. He's got a great pedigree as a Jew, but he doesn't. Why doesn't he? Because he and the and we who believe, we have come to recognize that our only boast is Christ. The only place for us to glory is in Christ because He is our salvation. He is our Savior. He is the one who perfectly obeyed the Father. He is the one who paid our debt and conquered death in our place. He is the one who's worthy of praise and commendation from God. And so we glory in Him. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in what He has accomplished for us. Again, none of this is new, right? Or at least it shouldn't be. Most of it shouldn't be new. But it's true. And this is what Paul reminds us of and encourages us to uh, remember and to uh, 
plant down deep in our hearts so that it will shape our lives, so it will shape our actions, so that it will shape our thoughts, so that we truly will be people who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. God bless.